Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Media bias is one of the great problems facing our democracy. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how much time you spend consuming news. If your news diet is unbalanced, you are very likely developing a false picture of the most important news stories of the day. To combat this problem, I've recently been using something called Ground News. Ground News is both a website and a smartphone app that collects the most important stories of the day, along with the various articles that cover that story, and then sorts the articles by their political bias in a user-friendly way. So, for example, I'm recording this on November 21st, when the biggest story is that a federal judge threw out President Trump's lawsuit requesting that the results of the Pennsylvania election not be certified. So I can click on that story and then get a collection of links sorted by political bias. I can then check out how the left is covering the story and how the right is covering it. But the most important part of this app is a feature called Blindspot. If your news diet is unbalanced, then every day there will be stories that you simply don't see. There are whole topics that the right is not interested in covering, and likewise for the left. So for example, today on Ground News, I can see that the left is more or less ignoring the fact that ISIS launched rockets into a residential neighborhood, killing eight people and injuring two dozen more in Afghanistan. And I would guess the left is not so enthusiastic about stories like this because they are hard to square with the narrative that jihadist violence is an understandable reaction to American imperialism. Meanwhile, the right is barely covering the fact that COVID-19 cases in the U.S. have surpassed 12 million today, and the virus seems to be spreading with a renewed vengeance. This obviously does not make America or the Trump administration look very good, So the right is not so interested in it. So that's the kind of thing you can learn every day with the Ground News app. This is a great tool to have if you're interested in having an accurate picture of reality. So I'll put that link in the description and you can all try it out. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Sam Harris. Sam needs no introduction on this podcast. He was the first guest I had, and I'm happy to say he's my first repeat guest. Last time I talked to Sam about reparations and cancel culture. This time we focus almost entirely on psychedelics, meditation, and spirituality. Aside from a brief tangent at the beginning where we talk about Trump and the IDW by popular demand. So without further ado, Sam Harris. Okay, Sam Harris, thank you so much for coming back on my show. Happy to be back. Congratulations on persisting. Not all podcasters survive. It's uh, I think there's a million podcasts now. So yeah, yeah, uh, that's great. Great Well, thank you. Yeah, good to see you too. And um, so it's been 
it's, it's been a while since we last spoke and, and a lot has happened. Uh, so I went out on Twitter to see what people wanted us to discuss. And mm-hmm. it seems the, that there was the most interest in you and I discussing two topics. One was Trump and uh, okay. your, your alleged Trump derangement syndrome. And the other subject was, you know, your judgments of other people in the so-called uh, intellectual dark web. And it occurred right. to me that I'm pretty uninterested in talking about both of those things at this moment with you. So I'm going to just ignore what ignore people the want. Audience. I'm going yeah. to ignore the audience yeah. to do the, uh, make a very wise decision and ignore the audience or trust that actually a, a large portion of the audience is equally tired of those topics and just talk to you about what I'm actually excited to talk to you about. And I think we've never got to talk about at length, which is the subjects of meditation, spiritual life, psychedelics, and that whole sort of area of your work, which you've been writing about and speaking about and working on through an an app form for many years. So I thought we could focus pretty much entirely on that if, if you're game. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to, to, if you want me to, in a very brief span, kind of put those first topics back on the shelf, I'm I'm willing to do that. But I've certainly said all that I think I need to say on those topics. I mean, really ad nauseum on my own podcast. So uh, yeah, I, I, the the you know, Trump derangement syndrome is a a term of propaganda. It's like you know Islamophobia or something. It's been invented so as to not have a certain conversation. Mm-hmm. And in my view, the real Trump derangement syndrome is to not have recognized just how dangerous this man was, and in some sense remains. Right. So it's it's just if if you can't if you think that Trump was at all analogous to any other politician in the degree to which he lied or the degree to which those lies were toxic for our society. You're just not interacting with reality as I see it. I mean, it's just, we, we, conversation is virtually impossible if you're not going to acknowledge and not, not you, but you know, your audience is not going to acknowledge that we were dealing with a, a level of dishonesty and conspiracy thinking and demagoguery, you know, aspiring demagoguery that, uh, you know, we haven't seen in our lifetime and then that has consequences and that we should be worried about those consequences. Uh, I mean, that's really where I start and end with Trump. You know, he's a profoundly uninteresting person. And the fact that such an uninteresting person could have achieved so much support from, you know, half of the country so as to form a kind of personality cult that would then, you know, export its delusion to the rest of us in the form of allegations of Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, it's just the whole thing has been so deranging of our politics, but for very different reasons than Trump's fans claim. So, yeah. So anyway, I don't think there's much more to say about that, or at least, I've, you know, I've said a, a ton about that on my podcast. Yeah. I think the one thing I will say about it is that I think a lot of people in my audience have the impression that because I care a lot about the dangerous new variety of anti-racism and critical race theory that's spreading throughout American elite culture right now, really just dominating the culture that, and because Trump relative to Biden seems to be on my side of that issue for the most part, that I should therefore be basically a single issue voter and ignore 
Trump's attempts to subvert democracy and just, you know, all of the other obvious problems with Trump as a person and, and as a leader. And it's interesting, I've just never viewed myself as a single issue voter, though I, I do care very much about that particular issue. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I'm not sure it makes sense to be a single issue voter on almost anything. Uh, and yeah, I think people yeah. also have that perception of you that you should be, because we tend to see eye to eye on, on that issue, on the goal of transcending race and the danger of critical race theory. And that therefore it should be obvious that we're voting for the guy that's, that's closer to that side of the issue. Yeah. And it, he's closer to that side of the issue in one sense, but in another, he's, he's the arsonist who's pretending to put out the fire, right? I mean, he was inflaming the, the, the far left in my view. And I think it's, it's going to be much easier now to actually focus on that as a, a real problem because they can't point over our shoulder to the quasi white supremacist in the white house. Who's a, uh, you know, uh, seems to be the justification of all of their concerns. Right. So now we have a, a Democrat in office and one who is pandering to, you know, to my eye, to an intolerable degree to the far left. And we could, we should just speak honestly about that problem, but it's a, it's a much easier task than having Trump and, and a gaggle of white supremacists in power. And then to still have to message the, the wokes uh, reaction to something like George Floyd is, is mistaken in almost every sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that's, that was, that was, that would have been much easier under Biden than under Trump to be, to be parsing that moment. Mm. Um, or so I would expect, at least it certainly wouldn't be worse. And yeah, and this, this actually connects to the other question that was raised, which is, you know, my criticism of other people in our orbit, my criticism is simply on that point that they become single issue thinkers. And they think that because wokeness is so annoying, they, they should focus on that to the exclusion of every other issue, no matter how important. And it's just, we can, we, we, we just can't do that, right? I mean, they're, they're bigger problems. Until yeah. there's an asteroid headed for the planet, you know, it, it, being a single issue person on anything makes not much sense. Yeah. Okay, so having got those out of the way, yeah. probably not at the length that many people would have wanted. No. I would like to focus you know, for the rest of our talk on the other side of your work, which you know, I, I was introduced to, I think, through your book, Waking Up, which I read probably when I was 18 or 19 and, and thought it was very interesting, but, you know, a little over my head at the time. I had never meditated and I thought it was very interesting from an, from an intellectual point of view. And I could follow, you know, the sort of logic of, of your arguments there and the, the logic of why one would meditate but I hadn't yet had the sort of first person experience that mm. suggested to me meditation was something useful. So why don't we start by talking about how you came to realize that meditation was something worth spending time on? Well, I guess it was about your age when you picked up waking up. I mean, I think I was 18 or 18 or 19 and, um, took, uh, I had my first experience with MDMA, otherwise known as ecstasy, or, or I guess Molly now, I don't know which is the most common term, um, which I took at that point, no one in my circle had mentioned it or uh, much less taken it. I mean, it was before 
the whole rave thing kicked off some years later. And so it was, it was just, this was, it had just become schedule one, I think a couple of years before, but it was still just, it was, this was a, a drug that had been in circulation in the kind of psychotherapeutic community. Um, and probably still was. And I, and I forget exactly how it was even framed to me, but I just knew that it, it this was not a party drug. This was an opportunity to discover something about the nature of my mind. And uh, so I, I took it very much with that expectation. And that, that's what happened. I mean, it just, I, I had a, a very clear view of how much more sane I could be, right? I, I had a, a pick, a default picture of what was possible that certainly didn't include feeling things like unconditional love or feeling radically free of all of my psychodynamics, you know, as I, I mean, this was a, the water in which I was swimming and I ha- had no real reference point to even think about what might be beyond it. But you know, it is an experience I think many people have on MDMA. It's just, I think if you're at a rave or at a party, it may not be as clear as it was for me at the time. But the two lessons that came out of it were that one, it was possible to feel much better about everything than I was tending to feel and, and much you know saner. And that this wasn't, that the implications of this were not merely that MDMA is an amazing drug or, you know, drugs are interesting or that, it, you know, that psychopharmacology is, is a real thing. No, it was actually that there was a, uh, a way of paying attention to my moment to moment experience and a, and a kind of an ethical engagement with the world and a way of thinking that was causing me not to feel this good or, or see my place in the world this clearly as my default. So I recognized it was possible to have a kind of firmware upgrade of one's mind that didn't entail just taking more MDMA or any other drug. And so uh, I'm, cur- um, I'm curious about that because I've done MDMA as well and had, and maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my experiences in a moment, but I'm curious what caused you not to interpret it as simply evidence that MDMA is a great drug that I should do more of? Because hmm. most people who have that experience, it doesn't suggest that there's a way to somehow cultivate my mind when I'm sober to become more like this. That That's not obvious, right? From taking. Yeah. It. Yeah. No, I actually had I'd landed with a, with a book. It was given to me in the, in the, the same person who had given me the MDMA had given me, one of Ram Dass's books, it's which I had never read. What was that? Good friend. Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't read it. Actually, the, I'd had the book on my shelf, I think for some years before I took the MDMA, but it was sort of, they were joined conceptually, uh, having come from the same person. And so after I had that experience, I read the book and, uh, then that put it in a, in the context of some kind of path, you know, and I didn't, I, I guess to, two pieces of fine print here are relevant. One is I, I, I don't think what I experienced on MDMA is the, the center of the bullseye so you, you know, contemplatively or spiritually, or, or you just, it's not the thing that one should appropriately aim for, you know, in, in meditation practice, although that experience is, is there to be had. It's somewhat adjacent to what I think the goal is, but uh, still it was, it was enough to get me started. And yeah. And, and, you know, that the book, you know, almost any book of that sort probably would have worked at that point. Anything that was 
situating that kind of change in conscious experience in the context of any kind of traditional path of practice would have gotten me interested in in sort of the non the non drug search for for the, to kind of recapitulate that experience at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think I did MDMA for the first time when I was 19 or 20. And I really had no expectations going into it. But what I remember clearly was for the first time in my life, actually experiencing self-love mm-hmm. and, and self-acceptance. Yeah. And noticing how good it felt to just think of myself and and realize that surely I I wasn't perfect. There was no sense that I'm perfect. I I have no ways of, I I have no need to improve, but there was a genuinely felt sense of just accepting all of the parts of myself that I might normally sort of loathe or be uncomfortable with. And then that was connected to the observation that once I loved myself, it became much easier to love other people. Yeah. And then the, the related observation that stuck with me was virtually all of the things that bother me about other people, especially when they don't seem rationally grounded. Just when someone's pissing me off for no reason, just getting under my skin, it's inevitably because they're reminding me of some aspect of myself, which I don't like. And with self-acceptance just comes an ease with loving other people. Right. Uh, And and that kind of, that stuck with me. I would say, you know, I've done acid and, and shrooms as well, but something about the MDMA experience stuck with me in, in a way that survived my come down where I could remember at minimum what it was like to feel that level of self-love. And now I could notice in my sober life, how far I was from that feeling. Yeah. yeah. Now serves as a reference point. So, you know, and this connects to the conversation about meditation and the varieties of meditation that you can practice to, to try to get at these feelings. But I think we, we should also talk about the other psychedelics here. You've had, you've shared some, stories in the past, some, some very interesting stories about dropping acid in, in the wrong locations mm-hmm. that, uh, I think yeah. are useful. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I view, you know, psychedelics as incredibly promising. I'm very happy that they're now being researched widely. And I think that just the therapeutic potential is, is obvious. And, and the fact that we lost a, a generation and a half essentially in research has, has really been a travesty, but um, I do view the the recreational use of any of these drugs as something that you you do have to to bracket with uh, some obvious warnings, right? I mean, it's, it's not that these drugs are good for everybody, and there are important differences among them that should be recognized. I mean, for instance, MDMA, while it's the least, uh, well, it's not even a psychedelic, right? It's not. It's the least distorting of your perception, and you know, for that reason. Uh, the experience you have on it is can be a very clear reference point because it's 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 just very easy to remember. It's not there's not not a dreamlike quality to having been that altered, but it nevertheless is physically just more dangerous than than the the, the proper psychedelics like psilocybin or or LSD. I mean, there, as far as I know, there is basically no lethal dose of 
psilocybin or LSD. I mean, you'd have to take so much that, you know, it's, you know, you'd have to take the dose of a thousand people to get anywhere near the lethal dose. Uh, Whereas with MDMA, the effective dose is not so far from the lethal dose that 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 oodine isn't something you need to worry about. It it is, right? So it's, you know, maybe it's a tenfold. um, I think the LD50 on MDMA is maybe tenfold the, the normal effective dose. So, yeah, so you have to be, you know, taking the, in these, the, all, in many places, all these drugs are illegal. Most places that, that people would be considering taking them, they're illegal. So it's, you know, there's, you can't just recommend that people just start self-experimenting without any kind of caveats there. So, you know, I, I offer those caveats, but for many of us, it is indispensable to be shown that experience can be far more different than it's tending to be. The, 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 the tendency to wake up every morning feeling like who you were yesterday and to live within kind of the, the, the range of, of those you know, expectations for changes in your consciousness, that doesn't give you an indication really of just how much better your life could be if you made specific changes in how you pay attention and, and what you pay attention to. Um, and it really is, and, and this is where meditation comes in. I mean, really, attention really is the cash value of what matters to us, right? I mean, we, the, the way we pay attention or, or fail to in the present moment, the way we, the kinds of things that, that capture our attention and the, and the intentions and motives and preoccupations that account for that, I mean, that is, that is your mind. I mean, that, and that is, you know, you're making your mind in each moment and you're, you're effectively meditating in each moment. The question is, what are you meditating on? You're meditating on self-concern and all the things you regret and all the things you are anxious about and all the things you hope will happen. And, you know, that's, that's most people's default operating system. And meditation is, you know, this word can mean many different things, but the, the version that I would recommend is is not it functions by a different logic. It's not an attempt to change experience per se. You're not actually trying to improve experience, and this is why that the state one experiences in on something like MDMA isn't really the appropriate goal of meditation. Uh, although again, that experience can certainly come along for the ride. But the, the logic we we live by of trying to to improve our experience moment to moment is ironically largely what degrades our experience, right? It's it's largely what keeps us from recognizing that the present moment and and consciousness as it already is admits of a real discovery of of, of intrinsic well-being and intrinsic tranquility and intrinsic equanimity and intrinsic compassion and, in fact, you know, unconditional love and many of these, these very, very positive emotions that, you know, people talk about, all of that stuff can be found sort of before anything changes in your experience, before you are in the right relationship, before you get the job you're hoping to get, before you, you know, get better from the, the, the illness you're, you're hoping to get better from. And whatever, whatever those contingencies are in your life where you think, if only I can, solve this problem, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be back to zero. The truth is that that is a kind of mirage and s- most people never discover it to be so. 
right? We just live our lives seeking happiness and seeking to become happy. Uh, and that's the implicit in everything we're attempting to do. And yet there is this recognition, which is itself uh, meditation, that you actually can't become happy. You can only be happy, right? And what, we're, what, what most people are looking for are good enough reasons by, by virtue of changing their life in the world to simply get off the treadmill for some moments at a time and recognize that the present moment is enough, right? If I can just, you know, if, if, if I had just bought, you know, GameStop at the right moment, you know, then I'd, I would actually be able to just relax and enjoy my life in the present. And again, that is a, that is a mirage, even when it seems to happen for many of us, you know, something great happens and you're just high-fiving everyone around you, you know, that lasts for what, 15 minutes, you know, five hours, and then you're faced with the same long emergency of just what do I do next? And how do I, how do I, um, scratch the itch that is now back, you know, and, and that really, the answer to that is the mechanics of attention, you know, the, the mechanics of being lost in thought, identified with thought, feeling, feeling no, recognizing no deeper context in which your thoughts arise. And therefore you're just condemned to live out the implications of whatever you happen to be thinking. I mean, that's, you know, the, 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 the bottom line here is that people are thinking virtually every waking moment and they're not aware of it, right? You're having a conversation with yourself, uh, as strange as that sounds, and you're not aware of it. And even if you're, if you're conceptually aware of it, even if, you know, you would say, oh, well, of course I know I'm thinking, you're not vividly aware of the next thought that is, that is arising, that's capturing your attention, that feels like you, you know, I mean, I've, I've been rattling on for a few minutes and you know, people are listening and some people are thinking, what the hell is he talking about? Well, like what I'm talking about is that voice in your head that feels like you, right? That isn't you, right? That is, that is just a piece of language in the mind. And there is a vast space around it and prior to it that is consciousness. And it doesn't feel vast when it's been trimmed down to this, this conversation that is happening incessantly and which just seems like white noise until you pay close enough attention to it. And so meditation is a method of breaking that spell and discovering what the mind is like when you're not continually identified with thought. Yeah, I found when I started meditating, one thing that helped me to see the voice in my head as something, than, something other than who I am was to imagine a pair of lips saying every thought that entered my head and then visualize that lip, those pair of lips in my head. And, and another thing that was useful was to occasionally ask myself the question, am I thinking in complete sentences? When I would ask that, I would suddenly become aware of the, the, the rhyme and rhythm of the voice in my head and how it doesn't usually complete a sentence. It's, it's completely schizophrenic. And they, they call it the, the monkey mind in, in Buddhism. And something about asking those simple questions or visualizing it as if it were someone else was a, a good way to just dissociate from it and see, see it as something other than who I am. And uh, I, I initially, 
I got into meditation actually through reading Dan Harris's book, which I found out about through you, his book, 10% Happier. And at that particular time, when I was 18 or 19, I was beginning to have panic attacks, very similar to uh, what Dan had in the book. And it was right around the time my mom passed away. And, and I, I assume that probably had something to do with it. But I was, you know, I was occasionally just getting this feeling of terror in my chest when there was nothing to be terrified of. And what, what struck me as so useful and persuasive about Dan Harris's approach is that he was by constitution skeptical of, of everything, you know, of, of the aesthetics of meditation and the crystal beads and the whole kind of woo aspect of it, but actually found that it essentially cured his, his panic attacks. And that's what got me to take it seriously enough because, because there's this problem with which you've mentioned before, which is that if your life is good enough and things are, you know, you have your ups and downs, but you know, you're, you're not faced with a, an emotional crisis it can be hard to find the reason to actually say, go to a meditation retreat for a week and, and be silent and just suffer through that harrowing, but, but useful experience. And I, I think for me, my, my mother dying was sort of the crisis, uh, you know, being faced with that, faced with death and, and surprise and grief and, and panic attacks was the crisis that got me to take it seriously enough. And then when I began doing it every day and sort of getting it to click, the the relief I experienced was indescribable. It, it was just, it felt like magic. Um, and it, it, there was this, this paradox of no longer fighting bad feelings, right? When, when, when you feel, for, for me, it was anxiety, right? When this anxiety comes up in my chest, the, the idea is to welcome it, to just allow it to be. And then paradoxically, it ceases to be a problem and usually goes away entirely. And, you know, it only took that happening once for me to be completely sold on meditation because I had tried everything. You know, I had tried all of the, the toxic ways of trying to get rid of anxiety, like, uh, you know, too much drug use and drinking too often, even, you know, too much caffeine, just all of these little toxic ways of trying to get rid of it. And then suddenly this method just basically works like a charm. And, uh, so, so that was my, my entry to, to meditation. And since then I've been on three retreats, uh, the longest of which was, I think, eight days at, at the insight meditation center and had some, you know, some very interesting and strange experiences on, on retreat as well. I mean, one I'll, one I'll just mention is, I think it was on my first retreat, which was only for, only for a weekend, that at one point I, I was meditating and my entire body began to just tingle almost uncontrollably. Like tingling is even too trivial a word to describe it. It was like, if there was a drug that could give me this physical feeling, it would be very hard to resist. And it was a feeling of pure pleasure, but it wasn't something that I was seeking in the meditation. It just occurred naturally for a few minutes and then went away. And this is the kind of thing that if you had told me as a South Park loving, 
atheist 16 year old that this had happened to you, I'd be like, okay, you're full of shit. Get out of my face. But these kinds of things are possible um, when you meditate. So maybe talk a little bit about just what's possible with mindfulness meditation and, and how you get from being a total novice to, you know, someone like yourself who's, who's quite versed in it. Well, I, so I would say that your experience of finding that the gateway to, to interest in this being the loss of someone close to you or the experience with death, and that's obviously a very common story and certainly my story, uh, because, you know, prior to uh, my MDMA experience, my father had died. I had lost a best friend when I was 13, right? So, so death was something that I had been thinking about a lot since a fairly young age. And that is very much the kind of the Buddhist framing of these things. Now, you know, I didn't study just within Buddhism, but, you know, Buddhism is the, is the tradition where they really, they talk about uh, just the, the inevitability of old age, disease and death, you know, you know, old age, if you're lucky, right. I mean, you can, you can also lose a friend at, at 13, right. Who, um, and it just, it, it demands that you ask yourself, what is life good for? Right? I mean, what are we doing here? What is, what, what would success look like when old age disease and death are guaranteed to be on the menu? And, and, you know, despite the, the imaginings of some people in Silicon Valley are not going to be removed from the menu anytime soon. Just what is impermanence? What are the implications of impermanence for us? And they they run very deep as you begin to pay attention to these things. And and it, you know it's impermanence is what accounts for one of the features of existence that I already mentioned. Just the mirage like quality of our satisfactions in life. The fact that you you know that getting what you want is insufficient. And getting what you want over and over again is also insufficient, right? It's just, it doesn't finally land in a way that's truly durable, right? There's no, it's just that that's the wrong place to look for a, a real feeling of, of satisfaction in life. You know, you, you can, and again, that's not to say that there aren't differences in, in life outcomes that matter, right? I mean, obviously, you know, it's, 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 better and nicer to get what you want much of the time than to just suffer one disappointment after the next, you know, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, ignoring that there are kind of, there, there are gradations of ordinary happiness that are, that is rational to, to want to, um, uh, fall on the right side of, uh, and the truth is, you know, the Buddha didn't ignore that either, right. D despite the fact that his philosophy is often summarized as, you know, life is suffering or life is unsatisfactory. It's, it's that's not in fact accurate to, to what the, uh, the philosophy is, but it's unsatisfactory if you're simply trying to, to satisfy this protocol of grasping at what you like and holding on to it, because in the end you actually can't hold on to it. And, uh, so if, so, that is a, a very good reason. I mean, certainly seeing someone die and, and, and die young, it's worth asking, you know, what is, you know, what is this for, you know, and how, and what would it mean to live a life in, in the context of this much uncertainty that we don't regret, right? And that, and that is as satisfying as it, as it might be. 
And yeah, so it can't be merely the search for more and more pleasurable experience, right? Because that just, that leaves you on a treadmill that, that only moves, you know, as you, as you keep your kind of frenzied running going and there's kind of an uninspected thing at your back, right? There's a sense that you're not comfortable, right? Alone with yourself in a room, right? Like the fact that solitary confinement is considered a torture is interesting, right? I mean, like what, what is, what's the, what's the problem being alone in a room, right? I mean, why, why would that drive most people bonkers uh, as it in fact does? Well, it's because our minds are completely out of control, right? And we have this, we have a notion, um, we have an understanding now of what it's like to train our bodies so as to to um, maximize, uh, you know, our sense of, of physical well-being and, and health. And, and, you know, that's fairly new. It's, it's only been a, a hundred years or so in the West where that has been a, a at all a normal thing to do. I mean, it used to be that the, the, the weird guy with the handlebar mustache at the circus was the only guy who would lift weights in American society. And... Uh, so you, you were literally a part of the freak show when you did that. But now, um, as, str- as strange and as arbitrary as it looks from the outside, repeatedly picking up heavy objects for no other purpose than to to you know work your muscles doing that, I mean, that's just acknowledged to be a, a totally rational thing to do. And in, in fact, an, an indispensable thing to do if, you, if you're taking fitness seriously. Or you know, pointlessly running around a track, or you know, you know, I mean, like this is this is this makes no sense to someone who doesn't understand the logic of the project. But once you do, you see, okay, this is a very wise use of energy. But training the mind is something that it's only now becoming at all mainstream. The idea that you can actually do something beyond just going to school for the first eighteen or twenty or twenty-five years of your life, and then just being kind of kicked out of, you know, the machine and, you know, uh, asked to fend for yourself and, you know, struggle to be happy. The idea that there's nothing more to do systematically with your mind than that, it ignores the, it ignores things that many people have known for thousands of years, right? That we're only now just embracing in the West. And part of the problem has been the, what you, what you cite, you know, with, in Dan's book. And that's why his book was so valuable that, you know, he came from a, a totally skeptical, really allergic place with respect to the new age and Eastern religion and all of the, the trappings of, of, um, you know, the, the, the cultural affectations of, of taking any of that on in a Western context. He didn't want to burn incense or hear about crystals or energy in the body or, you know, sh- chakras or, you know, it's like all of that had to be bullshit, um, almost certainly was bullshit. And yet he was unhappy and having panic attacks on live television. So what could he do? And the truth is there are certain practices that really don't require any translation to a modern secular scientific context because they, they really are just about paying closer attention to the nature of experience. It's not, you don't have to develop an interest in Buddhism. You know, the truth is I've, I've, you know, even in this conversation, I've said too much about Buddhism or, you know, and other traditional reference points for some people. And you don't need to really be interested in any of that. You just have to be interested in the premise that being lost in thought every moment of the day as a default setting may not be optimal. And 
And if you wanted to discover what your experience is really like, if you if you could only see it more clearly, it makes sense to pay clearer attention to it, right? So just to take a moment and I mean, it's just like, here's the challenge. Like, you know, if, if I asked your audience, you know, try to pay attention to anything, the breath or, or a sight or a sound, or even the, you know, the, the content of this conversation for a full minute without being lost in thought, you know, you'll, you'll find you can't do it. You know, and if you think you can do it, you were so lost in thought that you didn't even notice the, the cacophony that it, that is, is going on in your mind each moment. Right. So it's, that's interesting or should be interesting to people because that, that automaticity, that mechanism of being captured by thought is the medium upon which, you know, all of your psychological suffering is being delivered. I mean, that is, that is the place that is registering all of your anxiety and regret and dissatisfaction. And, you know, why the fuck did she say that to me? Doesn't she know who I am? Or like, you know, what, what do you, is she even like these conversations you have with yourself that have this structure of the I talking to the me, right? The arguments you have with people who aren't even in the room, right? Like you just, you know, you just had an argument with your sister or your wife or your girlfriend or, and then you're rehearsing it to yourself. Right. You always crush them when they're not there. Exactly. You're, you're recapitulating it. You're saying the thing you wish you had said, you're, you're modifying it. You're, you're psychotic, right? This is psychosis. This is the only difference between that and psychosis is, you know, enough not to say these things out loud, right? That's the person who says it out loud. Who's literally talking to someone who isn't there is the psychotic who we all kind of step away from on the sidewalk. So there's, so our default expectations of human mental health and well-being are so impoverished that we just we don't have a basis to even appropriately expect what what is possible of us and and so meditation is the doorway into a different kind of sanity yeah and the and the the first step is just to notice that it's very difficult to pay attention right like if if you're given the task of paying attention to the breath, which as one often is in, in mindfulness practice at the beginning, just notice how hard that is. Notice, you know, to try to follow your breath, just the sensation of breathing for a minute and see what happens. And most people, you know, eventually will notice that they barely connected with it for more than a second at a time before they were carried away by, by, they're thinking. They just, they said, okay, I, well, I can notice the breath. Well, there's nothing hard about that. Look, I'm doing it right now. What's, what's this guy talking about? They're not noticing that that voice that feels like their point of view is, is completely subsuming their, their experience in each moment. It's, it's, it's coloring everything they think they're paying attention to so that, you know, the, the present moment is just buried under a pile of concepts and self-talk and in every subsequent moment it's diverting them to this sort of dreamscape of thinking right it's interesting to as you pay more attention to what it's like to be captured by thought you begin to notice that it is fairly close to what it's like to be dreaming to be sleep and dreaming and not knowing you're dreaming Right. I mean, the dreams are, again, a kind of psychosis, right? You, you go to bed, you know, you, you, what do you, what do you expect? You get in bed, you pull the sheets over yourself, you get comfortable on the pillow 
you're hoping to fall asleep. And then the next thing that happens to you is that you're someplace else talking to people who, you know, may not exist, or they may be celebrities, or they may be dead, or they may like, and you're, you're in some house that has a thousand rooms, or like, you're in, the, the laws of physics have been suspended for your enjoyment, or, and there's, and you register no surprise, right? There's no, you transition from your bed to some other place, and it, apart from the case of a lucid dream, where you actually recognize it to be a dream, your mind isn't even doing enough reality testing to notice the break in in continuity in your life. You have no, like your the mind is is capable of being totally diverted into some other circumstance without surprise, right? And that is happening to everyone who is listening to this conversation right now with their thoughts, right? There, there there's this there's this voice in the head. There's this stream of images. There's this inclination to to divert from, you know, to lose the thread of the present moment. And it has this dreamlike ability to be unsurprising, right? But how could a thought actually feel like yourself? Like, I, like at first it wasn't there and now it's there, right? It's And it's just a, a bit of language and yet it feels like me. Right. That's that's the sense that this is that I am this voice in the head. It is a it's it is bizarre that it's, you know. It's the strangest thing I can think of, really, that that is our default state. And yet it is. And one of its properties is to not seem strange unless you've you've really learned to pay attention to it. Yeah. So a a lot of places we could go from there. One thing that occurs to me is, you know, the observation that pleasure seeking and even the endeavors in life that are viewed as more meaningful, you know, starting a family, having a meaningful career, all of these things are ultimately unsatisfactory in the sense that you described that there's, as you put it, you're looking for reasons to just sit back and be happy and they never come or the the moment you reach that attainment it it ceases to mean anything i mean, I, I remember when you know the first time i got an infusion of of many thousands of dollars into my bank account i observed how happy i was and how long it lasted and i think it was 7 minutes it was 7 minutes before i was completely back to the state i was in before i saw the zeros in my bank account and just thinking about how anxious I was about an essay I had due the next day. And, you know, that's just one, that's just a particularly sharp example of, you know, every other experience I've had in life of succeeding at something or, or pleasure or, and, and as I said, it goes with, you got six, you got six extra minutes there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Could have been worse. But once you make this observation, how is it, possible to continue pursuing life happiness in life in the way most people understand it you know how is it possible for you to you know make plans to say grow your podcast or or whatever plans that you have for your your app and your business and how do you relate to those goals if at all differently because of you know the premise that you accept about 
them ultimately being unsatisfactory? Well, so the, there are two answers to that. One is that, you know, you're very unlikely to fully break this spell mm-hmm. such that you never are captured by it again, right? I mean, like to, to, you're very unlikely to become a Buddha, you know, or, or to mm-hmm. become fully enlightened by virtue of your efforts in meditation or certainly anytime soon. So actually there's an analogy to physical, you know, like the weight training here, which mm-hmm. which um, seems apropos. So some people, uh, when you tell them about um, working out uh, or you recommend that they work out, you'll occasionally hear that somebody say, well, I don't want to get too big, right? I don't want to look like those freaks on the wall. I don't want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in, 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 you know, in Predator or whatever, in Conan the Barbarian, um, <laughs> without any awareness of just how, like, that does not happen by accident. You know, right. just what that entails, you know, how, um, how much effort, how much, you know, in that case, how many, how many anabolic steroids, how much talent, how much persistence, how much of kind of reorienting of your priorities would be entailed in delivering that result. And so being someone who becomes so equanimous and so um, free of the ordinary concerns of, of, you know, ordinary life, so as to to, to lose any connection to ordinary incentives, ordinary motivations, ordinary aspirations. That's just not, that's not the common case, right? I mean, that's the, that's not the unusual case. So what's much more likely to happen is you'll, you'll be able to punctuate your dissatisfaction and search for satisfaction with moments of clear seeing and freedom from it. And those will be restorative and, and useful for resetting or useful for, you know, extricating your, your yourself from, you know, things you don't need to be mired in and it just becomes a, a kind of superpower in an otherwise ordinary life, right? So yeah, you, you do care how much money you make. You do care that you're, you know, that you married the right person or that you get out of the wrong relationship or you, you know, you certainly want to be healthy as opposed to sick. You want, yeah, like all of these, you have the ordinary set of priorities and yet in every moment where you become destabilized by not getting what you want or getting what you don't want, you have this other gear you can find, which is, I know what it's like to be equanimous, even when everything seems to be on fire. Right. Or I know, I know, I know that there's an illusion here that I was, that just a moment ago I was taken in by, but now I see clearly that I can actually, you know, I can be happy right now, even with everything around me, not yet sorted out, you know, a thousand fires to put out and I can recognize, all right, this is, this is the moment where I either I get to walk my talk or, or not. And, you know, that's much more where, where I am, you know, I'm, I'm certainly a work in progress, you know, as much meditation as I've done and as much as I've focused on these issues, I spend a, a lot of my time lost in thought. And that thought has a certain character, you know, it's, it's often totally mediocre and totally focused on things that that are not bringing me much happiness, not bringing the world much benefit. They're just, what do I want to eat for dinner? And, and I have a, you know, a real preference for one thing versus the other thing. And I'm frustrated when the one thing isn't available and the other thing is. And so it's like, it's just the dream continues, but for me, it's punctuated hundreds or, you know, more times a day with this, this very clear scene of the nature of my own mind, which is, 
you know, I, you know, I talk about as, you know, in the context of, of the waking up app, I talk about it as, as non-dual mindfulness, right? I mean, the thing that I'm, that I'm being mindful of in that moment is that there's no, there's no self in the middle of experience. There's no subject in the head. There's no thinker in addition to thoughts, right? And, and that through a fair amount of practice and, and good luck, I've managed to, to learn how to see that clearly, right? And, and to not have to struggle to see it. It's not something that I'm waiting to have happen to me. I don't have to take a drug to have it happen. And I don't have to formally meditate to have it happen. It's just, it, it's just the way consciousness has been recognized to be. And it's always there to be re-recognized. And I just, by some tendency that is still, you know, has a half-life of its own and a dynamics of its own, I, I'm still capable of overlooking it in the next moment. Right? I'm still capable of being captured by thought. And so, yeah, so I'm, you know, I still I view life as, as a practice to kind of get a continuous practice to break that spell. And so the question, but then, then the, the other piece here is you can find better motivations and other motivations to do some of the same things that you were tending to do. So like, so for instance, we, part of my motivation in you know, building my podcast, say, is not the the crassly, ambitious, merely selfish one of just wanting to be famous or wanting to have more influence or wanting to, you know, wanting, wanting, wanting. It's the, the, the far more satisfying motivation of actually wanting to help solve certain problems, right? I mean, you know, wanting to, wanting to have conversations that actually do somebody somewhere some good and, and so, and wanting to earn more money is, is now, you know, fully mingled with a motive of wanting to give more money away to things that, that matter. Right. And to, to prioritize my, my, um, use of resources in a way that is kind of just clearly an ethical project to, to figure out how to, how to solve problems and, and mitigate human suffering and, and, um, mitigate things like existential risk. And so, I, you know, I'm using my podcast and my app and, and the other things I'm doing, like my, my career, uh, just consciously more and more along those lines of just trying to, to both personally direct resources in ways that mitigate suffering and, and um, it's the, the kind of risks we face. I mean, like I'm now doing a podcast with a, with a, uh, another person, um, this guy, Rob Reed, who um, has his own podcast, the After On podcast? He, he's yeah, doing a podcast a on. Yeah, he's great, and he's he's he's. I'm so I'm part of what I've what I was doing this week is help producing his podcast on on pandemic risk and and the, the problem of synthetic biology and just the the risk we're, we're running here, uh, which you know COVID should be a a dress rehearsal for. Um, and a, and a, certainly a wake up call. I mean, given how badly we've uh, responded to it. And so you know, focusing my attention on problems of that sort seems like the right thing to do. And then any of the other previously merely selfish concerns like building a bigger platform become essentially purified in having a different motive to build a bigger platform. You know, I'm not trying to become a you know, an Instagram influencer, right? It's like, it's not, it's not a matter of being famous. In fact, I, I actually, I, I've 
become famous enough to realize that I actually don't want to be famous, right? I mean, like this is, you know, one reason why I don't do a lot of video is I, I love not having my face out there all the time. You know, it's just like just just being a voice for me is much better than than being a face. I have the same exact feeling, despite yeah. the fact that I've that I do video. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there are arguments for doing video. I mean, the reason one reason to do video is you actually do reach more people, and yeah. insofar as reaching more people is part of the impulse to to help people and to spread good ideas and to get and to to direct resources in, in skillful ways. I mean, all that can be justified, but you know, it's my motives now are less. Certainly less uh, you know, merely self-directed than they've ever been because I've, um, insofar as I've gotten what I've wanted or thought I wanted, I, I see again the mirage-like quality of much of that. And you know, fame is definitely something that uh, I see the the downside of. I mean, one of the people I know who are much more famous than I am, I don't want any of that. Right? You know, it's like like it's. Um, the the kind of fame you want i've 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 discovered the kind of fame you actually want the fame you, you want is the the john le carre fame uh, he's the perfect example of of uh who's he uh john, well john yeah he's he just died he was he was a, a a spy novelist um you know probably the most celebrated spy novelist uh, and he wrote you know tinker tailor soldier spy and a bunch of other um british spy novels but um Nobody knew what he looked like, right? So he's like he was. A, he had a level of fame where he could have sent a, a he could have cold called the the White House at any point, and the president would want to meet with him. But he could walk into an airport or you know walk down the street and probably never get recognized. Yeah, um, that's that's the perfect level. Uh, but no, I, I know it's it's sort of considered uh, a, a little bit cringy to to feel bad for famous people. Because, you know, they're supposedly so happy and so lucky and, and have a platform and power and, and so on. But, you know, even the very small amount of fame I've achieved has made it obvious to me how isolating it is by default. I mean, to, to, to a normal, psychologically normal person, to be very famous is just almost inherently isolating and alienating. Yeah. Well, also, you're, you and I are in the uncanny valley of fame where... We're not actually famous, so it would be irrational to expect to be recognized wherever you go. You know, right. it's like to walk into a restaurant or to, you know, would be checking into a hotel or it would be delusional to think, okay, people are just, people are going to know who I am, right? And, you know, so when you're, when you're Tom Cruise or you're Jim Carrey or so you're somebody at a, at a much higher level of fame, they of course know wherever they go, people are going to be recognizing them. So that's, so there's no surprise factor, right? They, they, they know that the, the person they just met is now dealing with their own internal reaction of, oh my God, I've seen this guy, you know, five of this guy's movies. And, you know, whether they're saying anything or not, they know that's happening and they don't have to, con they're, they're not constantly ambushed by the discovery that somebody recognizes them. But when you're, when you're at my level of fame, you're, you're by default not assuming that you're anonymous, right? Because why would you assume that this person knows who you are? And yet you're constantly discovering that you've been in the presence of someone for a half hour who hasn't said anything, but then at the end of the half hour, let's say, you know, there's the bartender or the, 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 the you know, the person who was checking you into a hotel or, 
you know, a flight attendant or whoever it is. Or someone you're on a date with is an experience right. I recently had. Oh, really? You don't oh, find out till the end that she knows exactly who you are. Right. That's even more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then they, you just, then they tell you, oh, but you know, by the way, I love the podcast. Right. And then you realize, okay, wait a minute. I'm, I now have to review the last half hour. And I mean, this, this is actually fascinating psychologically to realize that there's a distance between who you are and think you should be as an anonymous person and who you would have been had you known you were the public person in that same circumstance, right? Like to, on some level you can discover, you know, what I think I discovered is that I cared more about my public persona or right? my, my, my public reputation than I cared about my anonymous one. Right. I right. cared. And yeah, so, like, so part of me was feeling like, well, okay, wait a minute. Is there anything I need to regret about the last half hour? <laughs> Did I, was there any note I struck that I wouldn't have struck based on, you know, if I knew I was maintain had the, had the burden of maintaining my public persona or my public reputation. And that, you know, that disjunction is um, also psychologically bizarre. Right. And, and so I think the, the way to, to solve that is to collapse the one upon the other and actually just realize that, that not for egocentric reasons, but you actually just, you just want to be impeccable. You want to be of a piece with your, you, you want to be your best self ethically and attentionally in each moment. And it's not a matter of maintaining your public reputa reputation. It's a matter of, of just realizing that, that every moment is a, is an opportunity to, to connect, you know, and, um, yeah. So, but it's interesting. Yeah. But I, 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 the uncanny Valley of fame is, is not great for that reason. Cause you're constantly ambushed by, by, cause again, it would be irrational to expect to be recognized and then you get, you get recognized and that's weird. Although I think I'd rather be in the uncanny Valley than, than not be able to just go to the grocery store or to the coffee shop. Yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of points I wanted to revisit about meditation uh, meditation retreats in, in particular. W what I've noticed is when I tell my friends that I just got back from a meditation retreat, the, the first question I usually get is, so did you have a realization? And I think that's a misconception of what the purpose of a meditation retreat is. And it speaks to the poverty or at least the unfamiliarity of Western culture with what the actual goal of meditation is. You know, people treat it like a therapy session where you know, your therapist is supposed to tell you something about your relationship with your mother and it blows your mind. And then the riddle of your identity is solved and you're happy for the rest of time. It seems like that's the expectation a lot of people have going into uh, about meditation retreats. But I think the, the athletic analogy you made is, is actually, it's so good in, in the ways that you said, but also in this way, which is that you're really practicing a skill. And it's a skill that, like you said, you, know, you shouldn't be worried about getting too good at because trust me, you won't. And I feel like I've barely gotten good at it having spent, having done a few retreats and spent you know, almost every, you know, you know, a half hour every day meditating for years. 
and I'm barely better than I was when I started. But then in a third way, I think it's analogous to exercise, which is that you don't have to get very good in order to see huge benefits relative to before you exercised at all. You know, just like running two or three miles a day, you're, you're not going to be notable at all. You're, you're going to be a totally unimpressive athlete objectively, but it could seriously change your life for the better. And, and meditation is like that. Like you don't have to get very good in order to see really massive benefits. Yeah. No, I, I think there are two landmarks that are worth kind of specifying in advance and two landmarks on the path that uh, one crosses. And, and the first is that is just going from zero to something, right? So it's like you're going from being totally sedentary to going to the gym once a week for 20 minutes, right? Or whatever it is. Uh, whatever that first increment is, it, there are massive gains to be had there. I mean, d- doing something is so much more than doing nothing in the, in the fitness space that, you know, I don't know what percent of the gains are realized there, but it's, it's a lot, you know? And so becoming mindful to the degree of just know, knowing what the difference is between being lost in thought and not, that's an enormous benefit. And it's the thing that allows you to respond to negative emotions in a way that, that without that skill, you're, you're just condemned to be as, as angry or as sad or as fearful or as anxious for as long as you'll be, right? It's like, there's no alternative. You know, something makes you angry. Some person says something that gets under your skin and you are now angry for what? 10 minutes, an hour, 10 days. I mean, how long are you going to ruminate about this thing until you can be, until you know what it is to be mindful of thought and emotion and to just step off the ride for, you know, even just a few seconds uh, and to be able to do that, to to find the muscle that allows you to do that, to allows you to make that kind of internal pirouette. You will just be angry or sad or again, for just hostage to, to an, that negative emotion for as long as you will be. And it will have all the life deranging effects that it has, right? You'll be the person who's now kind of vomiting that uh, complication on everyone close to you. And, you know, you'll be, you'll be bad company as a result of all of your, your reactions to life. So that's, a, you know, that's an enormous gain. And that can be had before one ever really gets deeply into meditation, depending on on how lucky one is and, and how good the instruction is and, and um, whether one has a talent for it. Or it might require a first 10-day retreat where it's like you actually kind of break through and recognize what's on the other side of distraction. Even at that landmark, to think in terms of kind of a durable insight that you don't lose, right? Now, again, you're the, the, the character of your life thereafter is unchanged, right? You still have all of the things, you, know, you all of the hangups and, and preoccupations and you know, weaknesses you had, but now you have this other perspective that you can invoke. But the problem at this first stage is that it still seem, it, it still can be engaged as a kind of antidote to bad experience in a way that is subtly corrupting of the the whole enterprise. Because as you know, you can't be mindful, truly mindful of 
anxiety, say, so that it will go away, right? If you're feeling anxious and then you become mindful of the feeling of anxiety, it's not, it can't be a strategy to, to no longer feel anxious, to push it away as quickly as possible, because that's, that contains within it a kind of aversion and resistance to feeling anxious in the first place, which is part of the thing that is uh, capturing you. So to be truly mindful of any, you know, any negative mental state, you actually have to be accepting of it. You have to be willing to feel it. You have to be open. It, it, it has to be a, a kind of compassionate, curious, accepting, non-reactive type of attention to the, to, the, to the physiology of anxiety or whatever it is. So you really have to accept it. Uh, and it has a kind of self-acceptance built into it that is that you know does open the door to kind of self-love or self-compassion that you that you referenced before. Um, that's the first stage. To, to, but it, it is hard. Like what, when when your mindfulness is a mere antidote to a problem, right? You've got a problem. The problems continually resurface. You know you're uncomfortable, and now mindfulness is a strategy that you're going to implement for, for, you know, half hour a day or on a 10 day retreat or, or moment to moment in the middle of your life, it is, it's easy to once again, get captured by the same logic of seeking happiness, seeking to put out fires, seeking to seeking something better. And it's, it is kind of subtly corrupting of the whole project because the real project is to discover that consciousness is already free of the, the problem you would otherwise attempt to solve, right? Like there's nothing actually on some level, there is nothing to improve, right? It doesn't, it doesn't get freer of self than it already is. It's not like you, it's not like you really have a self and you somehow annihilate it through successful meditation. No, the, actually the self isn't there, right? And the problem of having a, a, a self isn't there. All the problems that are, that are, you know, accreted around this, crystallized around this this notion of self aren't quite there as they seem and making that discovery is a kind of a second step on this this path or a, a second landmark which is you, you, at a certain point your mindfulness becomes synonymous with arriving at the goal right so that the mindfulness isn't a strategy you're employing to get elsewhere it's not a it's not a remedy you're not it's, you're not in the shooting gallery of your neurosis and just knocking down your problems, right? No, you're actually at rest, or right? you've, you've actually, like you've, you've turned about and you're facing just kind of the wide open expanse of no problem. And then every time you get lost in thought or every time you're made anxious or every time you get angry by something you, you've seen on Twitter or whatever it is, then your, then your antidote, then your response of, of mindfulness is not this it's not really a remedy in the ordinary sense. It's actually the direct relief of just you know, putting down your, the, the illusion of your many problems in that moment and, and really successfully doing it so that it's true to say in that moment that you're not doing anything, right? You're not seeking anything. You're not solving a problem. You're not, you're not going anywhere, right? You're not, you're not on a path. You know, this, this is the goal rather than the path, right? And so that is, you know, as I talk about much more in waking up, that's the difference between, you know, what I would consider dualistic and non-dualistic mindfulness. You know, dualistic mindfulness still has this sense of I'm the one being mindful, 
right? I'm the meditator. I'm, I can pay attention more clearly now to whatever it is, right? Anxiety. And it's po- again, it's possible to get very equanimous there and to have a, a, a real experience of freedom from kind of the ordinary capture by negative emotion and thought, right? So it is, it's, it's super useful, but it's not the same thing as actually totally breaking the spell uh, and the logic by which you would, you would seek to improve experience. Actually, one analogy that that I I often use that seems helpful is the, the first stage of mindfulness, dualistic mindfulness, it's often explicitly described as though it's like you're, you're standing on a riverbank watching the water flow by and the water here is all of the contents of consciousness you know your your anxiety your fear your joy your your the the, the thought about lunch whatever it is you can watch things more more and more clearly such that you realize that you're you're not really implicated in this flow in the in quite the same way right you're just standing on the riverbank watching it all go by and there's a, there's a, definitely a peace in that there's an equanimity in that but there's also an illusion in that because the truth is there is no riverbank, right? In consciousness, there's no there's no side. You're not you're not on the on the edge of your life, looking in, and the truth is there really is just the river, right? There's just consciousness and its contents. And you know, again, I'm speaking as a matter of experience. I'm not making ontological claims about the universe, and so the, so you're not aware of the contents of consciousness from some point of view outside of consciousness, right? You're sure you're aware as consciousness. And there is, you know, what you're calling yourself is another form of appearance there. It's a a somewhat inscrutable one, but it is a kind of kind of contraction of energy, a kind of a sense that there's a point of view, a sense of location in the middle of things that when inspected goes away. And then there's just you know, there's just the world or there's just consciousness in its, in its contents. And that kind of being mindful of that or being mindful as that feels different, right? It really is. It really feels like, okay, this isn't a, te- this isn't a technique. I'm not doing anything. I'm not strategically paying attention to anything. There's no place from which I would strategically aim attention at anything. There's nothing, there's just a, a, a totality, you know, and, and, and as you know, the Buddhists use words like emptiness to describe, you know, this, the, what remains there. But again, the, 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 these, these words don't translate very well. You know, emptiness sounds like a bummer. You know, why would anyone want emptiness? But it is, it's the emptiness that it, that admits of every possible appearance, right? It's the, it's the vivid clarity of consciousness and every experience, no matter how positive, uh, or negative, it's all appearing in the same, you know, open condition. And it's the openness that gets rediscovered when you're no yeah, longer captured I, by thought. I've been on retreat or just been meditating in my normal life and, and sometimes wondered whether I am achieving this non-dual uh, kind of mindfulness as opposed to the dual kind of mindfulness. And I, I usually just notice that that's a thought and then keep meditating. And, and, and then when I'm, you know, no longer meditating and sort of thinking about it, you know, it's not clear to me that I have experienced non-dual mindfulness as opposed to dual mindfulness. And, 
you know, I, I've always just come to the conclusion that whatever kind of mindfulness I'm practicing here is so useful that, you know, it's not even worth dwelling or, or worrying that I'm not getting to, to the deepest kind, you know, whatever I'm doing, it's when I'm doing it successfully, it, it just nullifies suffering. When I get the, the feeling in my chest that I normally code as anxiety, it just feels like a feeling in my chest. I'm not sure whether I'm really, I, I may still be sort of on the riverbank looking at it, but it's such a, it just seems like such a more healthy way to relate to it that I, I try not to sort of get worried that I'm not reaching the, the deepest level, if that makes sense. I would not recommend that you be agitated about your uncertainty there, but, and it is, you know, as you say, that there is a kind of superpower there, again, even dualistically, where, you know, to feel, to feel totally captured by the problem of anxiety and then to have, to be able to step back and notice the, the, the mere physiology of it, you know, just the feeling in your chest, right? And to become interested in that physiology and to notice that it has a half-life. It just, it just, when you're no longer captured by the thoughts that are, that seem to be justifying it, it, it'll just dissipate over the course of minutes at most. That is already so useful that, you know, there's no, there's, there's definitely, there's no problem there. And the anxiety, you know, the anxiety has no meaning at that point. It does a moment before it seemed like, it was defining of the kind of person you are. And in the next moment, it becomes like, you know, indigestion or a pain in your elbow or like, a, like a, it becomes, a, it, can, it can be unpleasant sensation. And yet it has no implication for, for who you are as a person, right? And that's a very, breaking that connection is, is um, very useful. Because I mean, that, it's just interesting that we, we read certain changes in state back upon ourselves in in psychological terms as kind of defining of who we are and other changes in state just are just you know it's just you 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 ate a bad burrito at lunch right it's like like that that's it could be a very similar sensory experience that doesn't have the same kind of meaning yeah and that's one of the things you can discover through mindfulness is certain emotions actually feel the same in your body like the like anxiety and excitement actually present the same in f- physically for me it's just completely depending on, on the context of how i'm framing it whether it's extremely pleasant or extremely unpleasant this was known you know over 100 years ago i mean william james wrote about this and uh, actually I, I believe it's still called the james lang theory of emotion that that many emotions are similar or identical to one another in terms of their just mere arousal and then they're framed, then it's the cognitive framing around them that defines the difference between something like anxiety and, and excitement, say. Consciously reframing experiences is another technique in, in the, the toolkit, which is uh, incredibly useful. I mean, you can just decide to think differently about this experience that you a moment ago were suffering, you know, as, as a, a real uh, kind of uh, impediment to your happiness. Like, like just, you take something like, actually, you know, stoicism as a philosophy is brilliant at this, just, just reframing 
experience. Like, so you just d- decide to, rather than react merely negatively to all of the you know, the unpleasant people you bump into online or the or the um, the hassles in your life, you know, machines break or you know you you've got to do the dishes or you know you get you catch a cold or whatever it is, the things that are unpleasant that um, you normally would just be annoyed by from the stoic program you you should view all of these things as challenges to your capacity for patience and resilience and grit and and uh, equanimity and look forward to them like positively embrace them like like basically to wake up every morning deciding that okay your life is a video game and at this level of the game all of these challenges are going to present themselves and so how, just how how are you are you going to lose these specific fights or are you going to win them in as elegant and as efficient a way as possible. And so part of, you know, the next fight is the the cold you just caught or the dishes you have to do or the hassle you just you ran into at work or the the annoying troll behavior on Twitter. Like each one of those, you you, you want to spot them as early as possible and kind of joyfully notice the degree to which you can be free of your or your your ordinary reaction to them in those moments, right? Like actually be, be made joyful by the the thing you almost got caught by on Twitter, we'll say. And uh, you know, stoicism is the philosophy that that essentially focuses just on that, just the, the cognitive reframing of all of the the unpleasantness in life. I'm aware from having listened to points like this before I ever tried meditation. And just having the thought, well, you know, this guy just doesn't understand what I'm going through. If he thinks I can just reframe this, just sort of think my way into being happier. And I remember that being part of the source of, of my skepticism. When we were talking about anxiety as well, you know, the notion that it's already not a problem. And there's a way, there's a practice that will get you to realize that from the first person, not as an intellectual proposition, but just from first person experience. It can sound dismissive of the problem. But, you know, what I can say from experience is that all of this is true, or, or it can be true, if you're properly positioned with the right, you know, way of learning uh, these methods. And you know, it's, it's only because, you know, and I have to imagine there are some people listening to this sort of thinking that it's only because you haven't yet, you know, been able to do it once that it seems like it's dismissive, right? It's the, the moment it works the first time is the moment you stop thinking that this is merely a way of dismissing your emotional problem or hang up as, as easy to overcome. Yeah, I, I think most people can get there conceptually if they just take a moment and, and actually try. So it's like, I mean, like like the, the stoic technique of negative visualization, I think is something that most people can get in hand. So like whatever your problem is, I mean, let's say you, you know, you just got a, you know, a scary medical diagnosis, say, or, you know, you just lost a ton of money in the stock market or whatever it is, you know, that like, yeah, take a moment to appreciate one, none of what I would recommend or any sane person would recommend discounts the 
importance of just deciding what are the things you can intelligently do to solve your problem. I'm not, I'm not recommending that anyone become mindful uh, or stoical and just w- wallow in their problems to no good end. So if there's something you can do to solve the problem, well, then do that, right? So if you, if you have a scary medical diagnosis, well, then what's the next thing you need to do along this path of you know, medical adventure to solve this problem if it can be solved. I mean, do you have to get, you know, some medical imaging done? Do you need to try a, a drug? Do you need to get surgery? I mean, what's, what's, ha- what's the next thing to do? And once you decide what that next thing is, well, then the question is, how miserable do you want to be every step along the way, right? Like, what, what are the degrees of freedom here that you can invoke to feel better than you're tending to feel when you now, okay, now you have a surgery date on the calendar two weeks from now, right? And there's nothing more to think about. Like you've decided to have this surgery, right? And you're, you're worried about the probabilities here and you know that there's a, you know, a, a certain risk with anesthesia and you've, you know, you, you unwisely went down the Google rabbit hole and you, you looked at all of the bad things that can happen. And, you know, those are st- st- statistically uh, problematic, but, you know, you are going to have whatever result you have, right? Not the, not the the uh, aggregate population level result. So the truth is in most of those cases, there's nothing worth thinking about anymore once you've decided what you're actually going to do. And then you are, then you will be the mere hostage of what you are paying attention to. And, you know, mindfulness, you know, can be a superpower in, in those moments, uh, which are most of your moments. I mean, most of the moment is going to be you know, waiting for surgery or waiting for the, the other shoe to drop, whatever that is. Um, and then, you know, dealing with, with the, the aftermath, which is, again, a, a lot of ordinary life punctuated by your or, or subsumed by your incessantly thinking about the past and the future. And, and um, so mindfulness is, is the great tool there, but something like, you know, a stoical negative visualization is also incredibly useful. And I think most people can, get their, their arms around it, which is whatever's happening with you, it's so easy to think of something else that might've happened, which hasn't happened, which is so much worse and which has happened to other people, right? Which is happening to someone somewhere right now. And it's so much worse than the thing that just happened to you that you would consider all of your prayers answered if you could just be back where you are right now, this thing that you're, you're currently suffering, right? So, you know, just if something bad happens to you, think of how grateful you are that, you know, it didn't happen to your kids, right? Or you have one scary diagnosis, but there's so many other scary diagnoses that are, that are much scarier than the thing you just got. Or you have, you know, there's some chaos in your life that you need to respond to, but, you know, you are not homeless right now, you know, and um, you know, you have all, you know, that the problems you're, 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 you're trying to solve are arriving in the context of so many other good things for which you actually are grateful, you know, and if you didn't have them, you know, if you didn't have the relationships you have, or you didn't have the, whatever the economic situation you have, I mean, there's just, there's just so many places from which to triangulate on your current circumstance and recognize that it's generally true to say that something like half of humanity in any given moment would consider their prayers answered if they could just trade places with you, right? I mean, that that's the circumstance that most of us are in most of the time, however bad things are, you know, for us. And, um, 
Yeah, it's just and it's just going to be very skillful to reflect on that and get a little more perspective. But it's you know I would agree with you that an insight into the power of mindfulness is the, is the more fundamental kind of rewriting of of the code there and, and very useful. All right, so that seems like a good note to end on. Before you leave, can you point people in the direction of your re- mindfulness resources? Yeah, well, for me, it's it's really just the waking up app. I mean, I'm putting everything that I think is useful in there. And now I have other teachers coming online and and um, adding their curriculum. And uh, so yeah, there's a lot of great people who are not me, but who are already on it. And uh, there's more to come. So yeah, that's just, that's just wakingup.com. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Yeah. Thank you, Coleman. Good luck. Keep, keep it up. Thanks. Keep going. You give me hope. <laughs>